You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm here, luxurious tennis magazine studio with Richard Pagliaro, uh, Pete Bodo. Today, we gather to talk about a couple things. First, I want to lead off with David Nalbandian, who yesterday uh, announced his retirement. He was only 31. Uh, shoulder injury was what he cited for uh, calling it a career. Um, Nelbandian, what I think about him is, I think I think about a lot because I think he was an extremely polarizing player on his time at tour. Um, you know, I think some people sort of adored his talent, and it was pretty obvious at times. Other people kind of really just let him have it for not making the most of that talent. So uh, I wanted to get your two guys' opinions on Nelbanian, you know, maybe, you know, what do you make of him kind of as, as, as he calls it a career and maybe just some thoughts on some particular moments watching him. So Good I'll riddance, let, I say. <laughs> well, why don't you start them, Pete? <laughs> Go right into it. Uh, look, I was never a big fan of Nelbanian. You know, I, I, don't, I didn't really get his game, I guess, as part of it. I mean, people really raved about this guy. And, and great, look, he's had, he had some great results at 2005 World Tour Finals when he beat Federer. That was a spectacular, tremendous moment, you know, for him and in tennis. And the guy could certainly play. I guess, you know, changing the direction of the ball, you know, the backhand, you know, stuff like that. There was, there was all really good. But there wasn't that much that was compelling about him to make me watch. You know, not unlike his Argentine countrymen, I feel the same way about Juan Martin Del Potro. I mean, all credit to him. They're great players. But I don't get a, that big a kick out of watching him. The thing with him, though, I think, is the whole Davis Cup thing, the way he's sort of, you know, he was instrumental in kind of, running or trying to run the Australian, uh, Argentinian Davis yep. Cup team. And look, I mean, you, who knows who's to blame? It's like our fiscal standoff in this country. Everyone's pointing fingers saying the other guys are to blame. But in this case, the fact is they did not get it done. Argentina has not gotten it done in Davis Cup. Now, Bandian was, you know, the guys that had, had seemed to have this really mafia-like attitude about the whole thing, like it was his event and he was the man. And so I think that was really Yeah, it's strange with Nalbandian. I think a lot of people will say that one of his uh, one of his greatest accomplishments was Davis Cup in terms of how often he played, how many matches, if you look strictly at the record. But as That's you right. say, uh, he was part of three Davis Cup runner-up teams with Argentina, uh, the biggest example being in 2008 when they hosted Spain. Uh, Nadal did not play for Spain in that final tie and that was seen, I think, certainly as one of the low points of Argentine tennis, if you will. But but more, it's it's more a reflection on Nelbanian. I think a lot of people talked about his political clout in that team, you know, and dissension. It, it was a lot of dissension on that right. team because of that, right? And and held as a big strike against him as a player. Um, you know, he had obviously some other other examples of of highs and lows in his career. I'll I'll let you step in, Richard, with with whatever you think is worth discussing for Nelbandian. I, I really liked his style. I liked watching him because, to me, what he did was his ability to take the ball early, like Pete said, change direction. It was a little bit like uh, – I felt a little bit like Agassi without as much power, but he could finish at the net. He had beautiful touch around the net. He was a great doubles player. To me, the, the problem was he never really fully got in shape. And he was just had a chip on his shoulder, you know, for no apparent reason. It's like, dude, you're you're a really talented player. You're a great player. Like, you know, what's what's the problem? I mean, he just always seemed to be a little bit surly for no good. And I used to think maybe it was a language barrier, but a friend of mine 
lives in Argentina, covered him for years, and he's like, no, believe me, he's like that in Argentina, too. It's not like he just comes to the U.S. and he's a little bit... He just seemed like, for some reason, to sort of create his own emotional obstacles. And for a guy that talented, he won 11 titles. That's not a lot of titles. I mean, Andy Roddick won, what, three, four times as many right. titles? And you could say now Bandy may be a more complete player, but he never won Yeah, he, he still major. won against the grain for the traditional player of that caliber. And, and like you said... Um, when I was looking up something for Nelbandi and for um, a piece for ESPN, you know, when he got to the semifinals of the 20, 2006 French Open, he played Federer. He ended up retiring in that match. Stomach he was, muscle. Say that again? Stomach muscle. Yes, ab muscle. Yep. He, um, he, he was only 24, I believe, at the time. And he never reached another Grand Slam quarterfinal after that. Um, and, and it's a player who I, I think, for for all we say, I think generally would be considered an underachiever when all is said and done. I think many people would put him as one of the best players not to win a Grand Slam singles title. Um, oh, it's an insult to all the other players who did, who were so hardworking. Hey, look, let's not forget, this is the guy who basically tanked his Wimbledon match so we could watch the Argentine World Cup team. And I mean, God bless him. It's his pride, but I mean, you know what? He was run out of town in the 20, 2002 final against Hewitt. It was, a, I believe, a, like a 3-2-1. and one. It was something like right. that result there. And um, <laughs> So he could play on grass. The thing is, this guy could play on grass. He'd yeah, he could play on anything. And then he, he passes, and then he yeah. sort of really blows off a match at Wimbledon because he wants to watch the Argentine national team. I mean, you know, great. I guess he's a patriot. I mean, it's the best you can say for him. But. He, um, yeah, I think, I think that ties into kind of the re- – the respect of the game that I think a lot of people might hold against him. I think while some people might have enjoyed kind of his really like his every man attitude, like you know, in a way, in some ways, you talk about the fitness, for example, he he kind of looks like sort of you know like a hacker out there sometimes, just the way he treats the game. But a lot of people I think held that against him. Obviously, there's that thing in Queens Club last year where he uh, he, he he bludgeons a uh, a linesman with this sort of bizarre incident where he kicks a uh, a, an advertising post and he gets disqualified from a final. I mean, it's sort of fitting that it's kind of happens to to a guy who sort of invites this attention to him. But he, he's just, he's a very, like I said, it's sort of a polarizing player. I think you either love him or you hate him. The players did respect him. I remember the time he crushed Federer in the open quarter. I think it was 05, the open quarter. And I'll never forget Federer coming in the interview saying, you know, he plays contra tennis. Like, I almost can't – he almost does things in a – I mean, you very rarely hear Federer say something like that. Almost like he just couldn't figure him out, even though they went back back to the junior days. But it's just you couldn't count on him in a huge match. And you guys talked about the Davis Cup. That was their best chance. They're at home. They didn't have to face Nadal. It was Eflo, and it was Verdasco. And for him to blow that up – and how do you get mad at Del Potro? He's like the – Humble, like the nicest, most innocuous. Like, if you got a problem with Del Potro, you got a problem with, like, human. I mean, I don't know too many players who don't get along with. He's like a mellow guy. If you can't get along, and then he's going after Del Potro's father too. During it's like, dude. And then people forget he had a problem with Coria like a few years. Come on, stop! That, you make you think know? I'm gonna miss so. this guy. <laughs> No, I mean, I, and, and, I yeah. how much fun it's, it's been It's like come, having man. said, I loved watching the guy. You just wouldn't want to hang out with him. I mean, he was just almost a, it's just a, like an arrogant, like an, a needless arrogance. It's like you don't have to be that You know, that he just way, seemed you know? very spoiled, and he seemed to have a sense of entitlement. It was a little like, you know what? You know, you see this happen with these guys. There was a, guy, there was a Russian guy, Andrei Medvedev, who got to be like number five or six in the world at one point. Got a huge contract from FILA, five-year deal. The guy disappeared for four years. 
fifth year of his contract with Fila suddenly starts putting up results again because it's renegotiation. And so, you know, you don't know why, what of, of that ilk happened to now Bandian too. It may, maybe it was just his personality. But, you know, the fact is, you know, a guy like that, you know, these guys, especially when they have that kind of talent now Bandian had and yeah. like a Medvedev had and stuff, you know, people shower him with money. It's a little like here, oh, you're great, you're wonderful here, take this. These guys, get, you know, just get spoiled. I, I'm going to leave now Bandian on a high note as I did with my piece uh, you talk about Federer. He was actually had eight wins over Federer. The majority of those when Federer, you know, was as, as good as he could be. And he was actually 5-0 and against Federer at one point. So. And at one time he had a winning record against Rafa. At one time he took him one apart. One of his first two terror, matches I mean. against Rafa. So. so is he like the GOAT? Is that what we're saying? Your greatest of all time? <laughs> I'll say he did show me. So the last time I ever interviewed him was the U.S. Open small interview room, and you know everyone always asked him about the fitness, and I I said, "Wow, you look fitter." And he looked at me, he smiled, he goes, "You always look good when you win." That's exactly. <laughs> I'll never ever forget him saying that because it did show he had a little bit of sense of humor. Stop you know, it! You make me like the guy. Stop it right now. I love watching him though. I have to Sounds say like that. a tagline for um, Argentine product, or something, <laughs> yeah, like beauty yeah. product, or something. Yeah. Um, Good. Well, let's uh, move on to players who are still playing, and that two of them that both of you covered um, Wednesday is Lina and Rafa, who are playing in the in Beijing China Open. They both won their matches. I don't really want to get into that as much as kind of what this time of year means for both of these two. And um, I'll start with Lee, who, as I said, China Open. You know, Pete, you've often written about how players playing their home tournaments it's a it's a different kind of pressure it's a a choking kind of pressure i remember you had a good piece once about Meltzer in in austria you know lee in china kind of takes us to an entirely different level so i kind of want to know your thoughts on um you know what you've seen of lee handling this pressure especially since she's become a grand slam champion and really what you think this time of year means to her um in particular well i don't think this time of mean year means a whole lot to her because look, look let's face it she's a grand slam champion and contender what means this time of year to her is basically gravy she's gonna she, she can she can maybe boost her ranking if she needs to although that's not the case this year particularly you know she's she's looking at the championships now you know with Sharapova maybe there's a chance for her to do something and look in China when you look at what Chinese players how, how few Chinese players play, play players have accomplished anything for her to get win to say the WTA championships would, would be huge mm-hmm. and winning Beijing would be huge simply because the Chinese are incredibly chauvinistic they love their players you know the Chinese will tell you that the most important events in, Wimbledon is not the most important event in China the most important event in China is the Chinese nationals they're a kind of a version of the Olympic Games is exclusively it's a closed tournament for Chinese so I mean this is it's very very big in China and actually the look on her face it sounds like a cliche a little bit but the sort of look on relief when she shook Lissicky's hand after that match today struck me. I've seen a lot of people shake hands at the net. I don't usually get much of a reaction. It's usually a pro forma thing. But I said, wow. I mean, the look on Alina's face, she felt so relieved, I think, because it's a tough position. Being at home in front of a crowd that wants you to do it, they're egging you on. It's almost, it's almost too much pressure. It's almost like they love you too much. You almost want to say, back off. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't put all this pressure on me. And I, I remember even the Olympics little... that time, she was like, you're making too much noise. Remember That's that right. Time? Exactly. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. 
No, yeah, so in, I think in she... 2008 in Beijing, right. right yeah, exactly. in, in Beijing, and then also even even at the Australian Open, the Chinese fans were. So you know, it, it, it's really it, it's really been tough for her. She's never won this tournament. I'm, I'm sure in her heart of hearts, she would love to win it. Uh, she looks like she's got a good shot now. Kivitova next. That's she's not the toughest medal player out there. So she's I think she's got a good shot. And she played pretty solid tennis. Let's let's move to Rafa, who you covered, Rich, and I want to ask less about. Um, the China Open per se, and more about this part of the season where Rafa. This is pretty much the this is pretty much the only portion of the calendar that Nadal hasn't been a plus in at some point in his career. Um, he's actually had a pretty weak record at the World Tour Finals. I think people who might say against Federer, if you want to talk about Federer and Nadal historically, people will hold Davis Cup against Federer, and people against Rafa will probably say, well, he's never been able to manage to win the exclusive round robin at the end of the year, which I which I think is a good argument to, to, to talk about. And But overall, you know, this time of year, Rafa has either often has been injured, but usually it just he hasn't been able to put it together this time of year. So, you know, what did you see from, I guess perhaps the question I have for you is, um, you know, how do you think Rafa will fare this time of year, this year where he's lost, Three matches and has still not lost a match in hard courts. Hard courts, the rest of the way. Twenty four and zero in hard yeah. courts. Yeah. You know, what do you think of him? I guess how often, how important do you think this particular indoor season is for Rafa with this year? Well, I think like you you said it exactly right. He the you could say indoor fall season is kind of like the final frontier for him. The one thing that he hasn't really conquered, and he's done everything you can do except that. I think this year could be different simply because I think. Losing first round Wimbledon, it kind of refreshed him. I mean, you saw when he came back to play in North America, he just rampaged through people. So I think maybe in retrospect, losing early at Wimbledon set him up for this second half where he looks physically fresher. He's not saying anything about the knee. He's not wearing anything on the knee. And I think he made a really good point after the U.S. Open final in the presser when he said, you know, people, well, what are you doing differently? Why are you so good on hardcore? And he, you know, he's, he didn't say one big thing, but he said what it really is is I'm trying to play closer to the baseline, but in order to – it's not just go stand inside the court. Mm. He said in order to do that, you have to be confident because everything happens quicker. The ball's coming at you quicker. Your reaction time is less. You have to shorten your swing, and he goes, to do that, you have to be confident, and he is confident right now. I mean, that was a tough match today, even though it was straight sets, and I think he is trying to step into the court. He's not playing eight feet behind the baseline he's trying to take it early he's doing the right things and most importantly he's winning and when you win you feel like you can do what you need to do so, so let I, me get this right though Rich you're saying he's actually better than David Nalbandian <laughs> where we are here he's a better interview that's for sure <laughs> you, you might make a good point about yeah, that Wimbledon result in that you know I, I you know I, I think I, I heard a lot of people saying after Wimbledon that just because of Rafa's knees, they might declare grass is actually his toughest service now. But I, I just find I just find that a little hard to take, considering how well he's done at Wimbledon his whole career, and 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 perhaps you know either the shock value of that early loss or just giving him more time to recuperate. I mean, you you see what's happened now. But I thought uh, what was interesting there though is the fact that he and this does go to his knees is that he missed the warm up tournament and that seems to really. Be a factor. Not too many people talk about that much, but it was. I think it was a Wimbledon warm up. Yeah, he mi- he missed Holly this. Yeah, year. that's yes. a good point. He was yeah. you know pegged to get the big paycheck and play play with Federer, but um, 
Yeah. Well, it'll it'll be interesting if London is really quick. If the if some of these like Adele Pulse, someone just try to come right out and hit through him and see how he responds to that. But the other thing is, you know, he's not serving as big in terms of miles per hour. But he when he needs a big serve, he's somehow able to produce it. It's really uncanny how he's how he's even that Djokovic the U.S. Open final the triple break point game. That one ace he hit all day was on the was when he needed it he produced it and that's so wait a second when do we do. start comparing this to Djokovic's 2011 guys well this is what I actually was thinking about today just supposing that Rafa runs roughshod through this indoor season and you know <clears throat> let's say he takes a Masters title and wins the World Tour Finals and you know he'd end up with something around like and. 80 and 3 or an 80 and 4 season with 13 titles. Yeah, 13, with 13 right, titles right, based in two slam. You know, the caveat is he only won two slams, even though he only played three of those tournaments. And that's that's where you can get into the discussion of, of you know how you compare it, sort of the unresolvable debate. But it, but I think it's absolutely worth uh, having that chat about because you know he has been. Practically unbeatable. And especially you look at Djokovic, his biggest rival now. He's got three titles. He hasn't won a title in a while. And I love Djokovic's game, too, but that's a big disparity when one guy has ten titles and the other guy has three titles. I mean, that's a that's a big, big yeah, disparity. Yeah, and especially when you see that, you know, in the head-to-head this year, Rafa has taken the reins from Djokovic in their little head-to-head there. But it'll be nice if they do meet here in Beijing because Djokovic is trying to hit that forehand down. Because Rafa, even Cole Schreiber today, Rafa, you know, he's moving to his right and he he almost baits you into going down the line so he can get the forehand. And, and Djokovic has got a better forehand than Cole Schreiber. It'll be interesting to see how Yeah, how but do we goes. see Rafa end it? Do we see Rafa, Roger, for the final time perhaps at the Swiss Indoors? You know, I got kind of got a kick out of Rafa this. So is Rafa is playing, playing the Swiss yeah, indoors. He's playing Basel, he's playing yeah. Basel with yeah. Federer, and he's not playing Paris. Which, oh, which okay. makes a lot of sense, of course, for a whole bunch of reasons. But it's, it's interesting. They're really hoping. They're obviously in Switzerland, going to be really hoping for Federer and Nadal final, maybe a farewell final of some kind. I'll I'll leave you with this, P. What do you think? Since you wrote about this a little bit, but I think it's really kind of the big question for you know the over overarching picture is: Do you think? a um, season end title, World Tour Finals, Tennis Master Cup, whatever you want to call it. Do you think that's critical to Rafa to win that when you look back at him maybe 10 years from now? I don't think it is. I think it will be a hole in a resume, but basically everybody's got one mm-hmm. uh, that I know of. And I think I actually am very much in Rafa's camp on one thing where he says, look, the game is played on three different surfaces at least, you know, more obviously if you want to split hairs. But, you know, why have the indoor, why have the championships indoors on a hard court every year? It clearly favors guys who are better on that surface. I don't, I don't see anybody can dispute that. And let's, and it's actually a weakness, I think, in the ATP system and their approach to the game. You look, they're committed to this. Everyone knows it's wonderful to have it in London. The O2 Arena, it's been this, the atmosphere has been great. Yeah. you got Andy Murray now, so the British crowds are coming out. It, there are a lot of things right about that, but the point is it's not fair. If you wanted to say, you know, would it be fair? In the same way that Federer's, when they talk about the Davis Cup, they're going to say it's not fair that Federer's from Switzerland. And, and until Vavrinka came along mm-hmm. in the past year or two and, and played at a high level, he had no ch- shot at winning the Davis Cup. So, you know... It's crazy to say Rafa has no shot at winning the World Tour Finals. He could very well win it this year, and he could have won it any number of times in the past. But I, I think it's unfair to have it. I think you're right, especially go back to the days when I was at the Garden. I mean, yeah. look at all the the whole history, basically. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. Good. Uh, well, it's um, you know, a lot to think about for I think both of these two that we talked about. So we'll um, 
And, you know, WTA t- championships come right up um, soon. That'll be another test for Lee, and it's a little longer for the men, for Rafa, and we'll see where that goes, everybody. So, um, again, good podcast. Richard Pagliaro, Pete Bodo, Ed McGrogan, thank you for all for listening. Tennis.com. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.